Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Sometimes I like to speak out front, but today I think I'll stand back here just for fun. How many of us like board games, video games, like games? I know I did, especially growing up. Now I don't have time for them. They can be fun. They can be interesting. Well, I'll age myself, and I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, and one of my favorite games was the game of life. I don't know how many of you remember that. Um, It was a fun game and supposedly lets you experience life from high school to retirement. You start out where you've graduated and you choose your path and you get to go. And as you move along the board, you land on life events that either garner you money or make you pay money and tiles. And if necessary, you have to borrow money to pay what you have to pay. Sounds like real life to me. Except at the end of the game, you retire. And you're either a millionaire with lots of money, or guess what? You're on the poor farm. Whoever has the most money and tiles at the end of the game wins. Whoever has the less, well, that's tough luck. It's supposed to be a fun way to mimic life events, and it's fun because guess what? If you're young and you haven't lived life yet, it's not real life. That's not the way real life goes. Once you get to real life, you realize the game of life really doesn't cover everything and our choices. You see, in a game, the choices you make, it's a game, you can come back and play it. But in real life, the consequences are real. Buy a house and take a mortgage, the consequences are real. You don't stop at the end of a game and say, okay, that's it. You still have to pay it. Cars break down. They need repairing. Um, Auto insurance comes due. I know that because this is a month for mine. Um, taxes become due, etc. And at the end, it isn't the one with the most who wins, it's the one who finishes life happy and with a good legacy that wins. I know many a rich person who has died over the years, and guess what? You don't remember them over the years. Maybe a history book will remember them, but you don't. I remember my grandparents well. They lived life well, and I hope to impart their legacy on my children, especially my teenager and further down. See, and retirement isn't living the high life. It actually has turned into living at the end of your life. Hopefully you have a great time, but too many people don't. So we all now know life isn't a game. And if you're young and just beginning on your journey, it's a hard journey that has many rewards if you choose the right paths, but many consequences if you make the wrong choices. A few months ago, after I did my last message, God started imparting on me what the next message would be. And Rabbi called me and asked me to preach today, and I knew, okay, it's time to bring that message. So God started to speak to me about how we treat our faith in him like a game, kind of like the game of life. And today, I believe this is a message that God has for all of us. Following Yeshua, being a believer is not a game. It's real life. It is eternal life. And when we treat it like a game, we don't fully grasp what we're doing, and we don't understand the consequences of what we do. Sometimes it seems like many believers out there, and I'm not pointing to anybody, but I'm pointing to myself as much as anyone, play a game of God, starting at the point where we believe and choosing a path and then spinning and landing on spaces, collecting points, and when we reach the end of the game, it isn't retirement, but it's heaven. And if we collect enough points, we get to go to heaven. So we go through the game, landing on spaces such as attend worship weekly, get points. Become a leader, get points. Get immersed or baptized, get points. Tithe, get more points. Speak the right language, get points. 
behave the right way, get points, proclaim your faith, get points until you reach the end. And if you have enough, you get to go to heaven. And if you don't, well, we'll see. I want to tell you today, our faith, our belief is not a game. We have to avoid playing the game of God. Today, I want to focus on a couple of people in the Tanakh who played the game of God and the devastating consequences that they suffered. And then I want to discuss how we as believers can make our faith not a game, but a living faith that will transform this world. So if you turn with me, if you have your Bible there, to Numbers 16. And we're going to visit our old friend Korach. So Korach, we all have heard the story. And so I'm going to start reading it um, 16.1. Now Korach, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and sons of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, rose up against Moses and took 250 men from B'nai Israel, men of renown who had been appointed to the council. They assembled against Moses and Aaron. They said to him, you have gone too far. All the community is holy, all of them, and Adonai is with them. Then why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of God? So Korach and his followers had played the game well. They spun the wheel, they landed on their spaces, got their points, and they showed their points and said, we're holy. How come you act like you're holier than us? So here they see Moses and Aaron being exalted above the assembly, and they get jealous. Why aren't they in the same position? After all, they played the game right. I mean, look at Moses. Who was he to be above Korah? Moses, he didn't live the life of the slaves. He lived in Pharaoh's house. Moses, he did kill an Egyptian, and what did he do? He fled. Uh, Moses just didn't have as many points in Korach's eyes, so how could Moses be as as holy or holier than them? So what does God do? God tells Moses to have them set apart from the rest of the community, and God would show who was chosen by God. Not who was a winner by points accrued, but who was chosen by God. So we all know how the story turned out. The ground opens up and swallows Korach and his followers and their families alive. Scripture says they were sent to Sheol alive and with all they owned, and then the ground covered them up. So imagine this. You're sitting there. Ground opens up, swallows them, doesn't leave a gap there, closes up over them. The NIV actually says they went to the realms of the dead while being alive. Um, One of my shows that we like to watch is Once Upon a Time. And some people might not like it, some may, but there was a whole thing of these people going alive to the underworld with Hades, and it kind of brings that to point. These people went there alive, no way out. Today, God's not going to open the ground and swallow us up unless maybe you live in California or somewhere. And that's not based on whether you believe or not, it's just based on living in California. Um, It was a tough and harsh punishment, but Korach played the game. And even though he felt he won, he lost. Next one I want to focus on is King Saul. Now imagine this. Saul, he's nobody. He's out there. And here comes the prophet and anoints him to be the king of Israel after the Israelites asked for a king. Saul played the game well, got points, moved through the game, though not realizing he had done so. Saul wasn't the obvious choice, but Saul continued to play the game, believing if he collected points, he would win. Yet Saul didn't realize that isn't the way following God worked. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel told Saul 
the Lord instructed him to attack the Amalekites and destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Eradicate them. Erase them. Saul was instructed to destroy everything. So Saul sort of followed the instructions, didn't he? He did kill all the people and most of the livestock and everything else. However, he kept the king alive and the best of the livestock and everything else. He followed the instructions, at least in his mind. In verse 13, Saul tells Samuel he followed the instructions. So Samuel says, why do I hear the sound of cattle and sheep? Saul says they brought the best for sacrifice to God. Samuel stops him. And this is a very important passage here because here is where Samuel says God prefers obedience to sacrifice. And so his punishment for not following God's word was to be rejected as king. Saul says he's sorry and says, Samuel, come with me to worship the Lord. Samuel refuses. The judgment was final. And as we followed Saul's life, we saw what this did to him. Not only did he lose the kingship, but he became paranoid. He became jealous. He was only a shell of the man he, had be, he was originally. So God is the second God of second chances. So why did he not take a second chance with Saul? I think God could have provided redemption for Saul if Saul wanted it. But Saul couldn't serve as king because to be a king in the community, Saul had to follow God's word. And I'll talk a little more about this later in the message. Third one I want to focus on, you'll kind of be surprised, is King David. King David did everything right. He followed God with all his heart. He did the right thing when he could have killed King Saul and taken the throne. How many times did he have a chance where he could have killed the king and he could have become king? Yet his response was, I will not touch God's anointed. That's playing the game right. That's doing everything right. He didn't try to undermine Saul, and yet Saul tried to kill him. So when Saul died in battle, he took the kingship, did well. He was racking up the points in the game and thought he was invincible until he took a walk one fateful night on his roof and saw a beautiful woman bathing. Now understand this. If I went on my roof, I wouldn't see anyone bathing. But back then in Israel, and Howard might be able to say some of the houses, people, they didn't have a bathroom where you locked off. It was usually on the top. So here, David, anointed by God, king of Israel, everything going right, sees this beautiful woman, and he didn't land on a space that said, see beautiful woman and take her as wife. That space wasn't there. He decided to go ahead and do it. Maybe he thought he had gained enough points to win the game and everything would be fine. And yet that night, he threw everything away. I mean, he threw away everything just to pursue a desire. He called for Bathsheba, and some of you may have seen the scriptures, it says Bathsheba, but it's really Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba, even though he was told she was someone else's wife. He lay with her, she got pregnant, and now he had to cover it up, and he tried, and he tried to call Uriah back to sleep with her, so it would be her, his child, nothing worked. He had Uriah killed in battle. Everything he had accumulated to that point, out the door. Then he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. We all know the story. Nathan tells him the story of the poor man whose lamb is taken by the rich man. And David says, well, that man should be put to death. And in 2 Samuel 12, 7, here's what Nathan says. You are that man. God anointed you king over Israel and rescued you from Saul. 
God gave your master's house and gave you his, your master's house and his wives. I gave you the house of Judah and Israel. And if this weren't enough, I would have given you more. Why did you despise my word by doing what I considered evil? You had Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. You took his wife as your wife. You used the Ammonites to kill him. So, warfare will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of your Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. That was a long-lasting punishment. There were other punishments. The child died. His son would sleep with his wives and concubines in public. His children were, would suffer. And yet God still allowed his son to take over as the next king. The child of Bathsheba and David, the next child to take place on the throne. David had a lot of points, but still lost in the end, even though he is a revered person in scripture and I'm sure is with God, but he threw a lot away just by one decision. So the question becomes, after seeing these three, how do we avoid the same path? How do we avoid treating our faith in Yeshua, our faith in God as a game, and who can we emulate on our journey? Yeshua is a great answer, and we should emulate Yeshua, but I haven't had the ability to raise people from the dead, turn water into wine, or in my case, since I don't like wine, vice versa. Haven't had a chance to do any of that. So I'm going to select Rav Shaul, Paul, as he is known today. I think Rav Shaul set the path to living as a strong believer and not treating his faith or the faith of followers of Yeshua as a game. So how do we follow him and go forward until we receive our reward, and how do we not treat our faith as a game? First step, be knowledgeable about the word of God. In Acts 22.3, Paul is speaking when he says he is a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, under, studied under Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the Torah and traditions. He knew the word of God, the Torah, and received the revelation of Messiah Yeshua on the Damascus Road. Quite a revelation. He knew it all. He knew the scriptures inside out. And you've got to remember, there, people couldn't walk around with the written Torah. We didn't have it. They didn't have it in books like this, and people weren't exactly walking through the streets with the scrolls. It had to be written inside. There was no besora. There was no written word of Yeshua's um, life. It was all passed down orally. He couldn't pull out his Bible. He couldn't read about Yeshua. He was immersed in Torah. He knew it, and he learned under the best scholar of his day, one of the best, if not the best, Gamaliel. And he had the word of God revealed to him on the road. So today we have great access to the word of God, the Tanakh and Besora. Today we have no excuse not to read the word of God daily. Don't say you're too busy. If you say you're too busy, it just really means it's not a priority. And if you can't find a few minutes of a day to read, we have 24 hours in a day. If you sleep eight, you've got 16 hours. If you can't take five minutes to read the word of God, then it's not a priority. So stop saying I'm too busy. Just say it's not a priority. My morning routine is I get up every morning. I shower, wake up, get dressed. Then I go downstairs. I have a chair downstairs. And I sit, and on my iPad, Kindle, I start reading the Bible. I start in Genesis, work my way through the Bible, and when I hit the end of Revelation, back to Genesis. And you know what? It's not boring. I find something new every time I read it. I can read through Genesis a hundred times. I'll find something new, maybe a revelation, because God can speak to you. 
Sometimes I read some passages with great satisfaction, sometimes with trembling and fear. My hope is to get the reward in the end, but sometimes, again, as I read the Bible, I tremble in fear. And one of the passages that really makes me tremble the most is the sheep and goats. Because they're divided. They're not, hey, did you believe in me? Hey, did you say you believed in me? Did you do all the right things? No. What was required? Feed the hungry. Give to those who are thirsty. Invite strangers in. Clothe the naked. Visit the sick in the hospital and prison. And I always read that, and I can read through it. Every time I read through the Bible, and it makes me tremble. Am I doing enough? I don't like to share what I do, but I'm going to tell you a story that I think will hopefully give you an idea. So I walk home from work. I work in downtown New Haven. I live in Westville. It's about three and a half miles. One Friday, I'm walking home, about five-something. I walk past Toad's place there, and a guy says, can you help me? I'm hungry. Now, if you've ever been in downtown New Haven, you probably can't go a block or two without someone asking you for money. But I've never seen this guy. Never saw him. God put on my heart to feed him. So I took him over to Yorkside Pizza, got him a meal, walked away. To this day, and this has been about five months, I have not seen him since. It's just like he popped in and popped out. And I walk all over downtown. I still have never seen the guy since. It's almost like God put someone there and said, feed him. I could have walked away, and what would it have been? Now, we would all go broke if we gave everybody money who asked for money, obviously. But, you know, you've got to be respectful of what God's doing and listen to God. And if God's tugging at your heart to help someone, even if you've seen him a million times out there, you've got to do it. Don't be like the goats. Be like the sheep. Second, be repentant. Now, we all know repentance is the first step in our faith journey. We start with repenting. But we need to have the attitude of repentance throughout our walk that brought us there to the first place. It's not one step, we're done. It's not one tile, land, here, get two tiles, you repent and move to the next step. It's got to be there. Hebrews 26 is another scripture that leaves me trembling. For the author says that the sacrifice is lost if we continue to sin willfully. Paul had to deal with his own sins. He wasn't perfect, although he doesn't elaborate on what they were. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, 9, Paul says, To keep me from being conceited, because of these great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I personally believe there was a sin in Paul's life which God allowed Satan to remind Saul so he wouldn't become conceited. Now, how many of us know that for every sin we've committed in our life, there's that voice that keeps reminding us? um, If you're not getting it, then open your ears because it's there. That's what Satan's MO is, to remind you of your past instead of reminding you of what God can do for you. Paul was repentant and still suffered. And just because we are believers doesn't mean we don't sin. Hopefully we won't sin willfully and continually, and God's grace is everlasting and reaches far. But sin is not to be treated as a gain. For continual sin willfully will lead to a loss of sacrifice, and our sacrifice is Yeshua. And what use is a sacrifice if we don't change? That first step is the first step, but through life we have to change. And God has changed me significantly over the past years. And I've been a believer now, this will be 34 years. And God continually changes me and continues to change me. 
and I've learned that I have to be repentant. I have to think about what I do. Third, use God's gift, use the gifts God has given you accordingly. We all have gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 11, Paul says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Point is, we are all given gifts by God, and we all don't have all the gifts. God has given everybody a gift or maybe multiple gifts, and we have to figure what those are. And if we have a gift, use it. And But remember, who gave you the gift? Gifts aren't used to gain points on the game board. They're not used to self-promote. As you see here, it's used for the common good. So if you have the gift of healing, use it, but don't elevate yourself, but use it for the common good, the common good being the health of the community, the health of the world, the health of the believers. Um, If you're a teacher, teach for the common good, not for self-promotion. Don't stand up and say, I am a great teacher, but rather teach to edify people, to bring them up. Everybody here who is a believer has a gift. I'm going to tell you another story. Years ago, I thought I wanted to be a rabbi. Sorry, rabbi. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This was around the time Dorothy and I started becoming good friends. I had gone on a trip to Louisiana, came back, and there was a congregation down there, and I knew the guy, and he said, why don't you become a rabbi? Come down here and be a rabbi. And I thought I could be a good rabbi and leader of the congregation. I thought about it, thought I could explore it, maybe move back to Louisiana. Thank God I didn't and maybe take leadership. Yet I realized my gift isn't to be a rabbi, but instead an administrator, elder, president, a servant in the congregation. That's my gift. And it was the gift God has given me, not for me, you know, but for the common good, for the good of the community. So I encourage you, find your gift, pursue it, but with the knowledge of God's word and repentance and humility. Otherwise, you too can be like Korach, Saul, and David. Fourth point is don't forsake the assembly of the believers. In Hebrews 10.25, we are exhorted by the author to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but exhort one another as the day approaches. This wasn't written by Paul, I don't think, but this is something Paul practiced. Many times he spoke to the assemblies of believers, and when he was in prison, his greatest joy, his greatest hope was to come and be with the assembly. So what does it mean to forsake the assembly? It's not just saying bad things, oh, that community's horrible, or this place is horrible. It's, but it is about not assembly, um, it's about not assembling with believers on a regular basis. It's about not going the route of a lone ranger, thinking you can do it on your own. 34 years as a believer, I can tell you, you can't do this on your own. Some, we have some excuses that may be good for not to be here on Shabbat or not be in the assembly. Maybe you're sick. Please don't come and give everyone what you have. Or maybe you're on vacation. Guess what? You're entitled to take a vacation. Maybe you need rest. But others may not be legitimate. It's not a priority. I like sleeping in late. I just really don't want to be there. Why do we need to assemble? Is it just so we can show people how holy we are, stand in front of them and say, wow, we're super holy? No. It's so we can exhort each other, 
so we can worship together. It's so we can lay hands on each other and pray for healing. It's so we can be around fellow believers when our week is primarily around those who don't believe. It's so we can be in God's presence in a world that shuns God. I've seen people start the downward spiral from faith over my 34 years of believer, and I will tell you to this day, the first step is walking away from that fellowship. Once you do, it's a downward spiral. So when you hear that voice saying, you don't need to be here, you tell that voice, get away. Yes, I do. I need to be with my fellow believers, because without it, there's nothing to do, and I will be on that downward spiral. So as I conclude... I want to share a story about the damage that can be done when we play the game of God. Now, some of you may know I went to school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ken, go Tigers. That's just something between Ken and I. This was in the early to mid-1980s. It was a great time to be a believer in Baton Rouge. Churches were growing. Campus groups were growing. I was part of one that was formed in 1984, still there today and thriving. The Spirit of God was all over this place despite evil in every corner. One of the biggest churches and ministries was Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. Many of you may have heard of him, many of you may not. He built a huge church complex. He had a big international Bible school, which brought in people from all over. I knew people who went to the school. I went there for chapel, and it was great. It was a great place to be. But we found out later Jimmy Swaggart was playing the game of God. He got caught with a prostitute in a hotel room. And he said he was um, repentant, but... He did not follow what was required of him. It was one of the big scandals of that time, but I actually saw the consequences of what happened. The Bible school closed. Some friends who went there questioned and eventually left their faith bitter. One friend left the faith, dated a man who was a partier, and then came to faith, and then left him when he came to faith. Got that bad. When she found out, she ended the relationship then and there. Haven't heard from her, don't know what happened to her since, but it probably wasn't good. Those scandals of the 80s caused much heartache because people were playing the game of God. They thought if they got the right amount of points, they were invincible. People gravitated them, played along with the game, invested the game, and when the leader lost, so did they. So today I challenge you, don't treat your belief in Yeshua as a game where all you have to do is get points, you win. The more points, the better off you are. Don't be like Korah, Saul, and David who thought they had enough points. Be like Rav Shaul, Paul, and be knowledgeable about the word of God you live. Be repentant and understand sin is ready to overtake your life and bring you to ruin. Use the gifts God has given you, and don't be jealous of others. Rather, embrace them, embrace their gifts and your gifts. And finally, don't forsake the assembly. Come, every chance you get, even if it's inconvenient. I don't care if it's 120 degrees out there or 20 below. The doors are open, come. Be lifted up. Seek healing. Pray for those who need healing. Fellowship with us and other believers. Grow in the faith. No more game of God. Instead, let's change it to life with God. And let's change this world.